Good morning, Rock Creek. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Proverbs 4, 1 through 9. Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention to gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. For I, too, was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me, and he said to me, Take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands, and you will live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. Cherish her, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. Our New Testament reading this morning is from Colossians 2, 1 through 7. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom all hidden in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in the body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, can you continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith, as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you all may have read R.L. Stein's Goosebumps series. He sold 400 million copies, so there's bound to be somebody in here who's read something of his. He said his favorite fan letter, I guess you could call it a fan letter, was this. Dear R.L. Stein, I have read 40 of your books, and I think they are all really boring. We reveal a lot with our words, and it's amazing to me that even something that can seem so boring and we can bring so little to it as to misunderstand it can nevertheless intrigue us, entice us, and keep us coming back for more. So even if this sermon today should be boring, it might, it would be awesome in the right use of that word, an awe-filled phenomenon. If God, in response to the prayers you're going to pray right now, if you wish, would give us something to keep at it, would give us something to lift our heads, would give us a wind at our back and a spring in our step so that we would keep on coming to him because we find in him the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and life unending. 
Will you take a moment and ask him to speak? Lord, we bring something to this enterprise, we realize. But all the good stuff will come from your rearranging, from you tilling the ground and making us a people of tender responsiveness. And so I'm asking right now with full confidence in your unquenchable determination to do good to your people that you hear these precious ones as they ask you for a word of nourishment for their weary, dehydrated souls. They need to be perked up. We need to be boosted. So will you hear us as we ask for your help silently to the one whose ears draw prayers out of us? Hear our prayers. Lord, even though we may have trembling, miserable little hearts like Miss Much Afraid, we do love you. We do at least want to love you. We want to know more of you. We're here because we sense there's something more to be known and that should you be inclined that we could receive something from you that would activate new desires in us, that would put new perspective in us. It would give us new eyes for where we are and who you are. So will you come right now and give us aid? Will you come and show us the marvels, the wonders, and the unparalleled magnificence of King Jesus? I confess, and I don't know if I'm speaking for everyone, but you don't always seem that great to me. Sometimes you seem just far off and unconcerned. I know from your scriptures that is impossibly the case. It's never the case. But boy, does it seem like it sometimes. So I'm asking you to come and prove to us because of your gut-shaking compassion that we are yours and that's the best one to belong to. Come be with us, Holy Spirit. Come be with us. Amen. In the earlier service, I think I misattributed a quote about I'm a lover, not a fighter. I said that Pee Wee Herman said that to Dottie in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. But I think he said I'm a loner, Dottie, a rebel. I think it was the king of pop, Michael Jackson, who said, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Whoever said it, someone said it, and it's in your brain somewhere, it was in mine. And I wanted to frame what we're thinking about today because I do think there's this sense 
that says if you're a lover, you can't be a fighter, and if you're a fighter, you can't be a lover. And I think the Apostle Paul is going to show us in a vivid way what a lot of us have experienced, even if we haven't put it in these words, that if you are going to love anyone or anything, you are engaging yourself in a great fight. If you are someone who is married or getting married or someone who has a relationship with any children, if you're someone who has even a dog or worse, a cat, I'm getting converted to cats. I petted a cat last night for more seconds than I felt obliged to. It was our cat, and it came up to me. It was, we have a cat. I don't fiddle with it much, but he came up to me late at night. Compassion came out of me. You've all gotten me off track here. Anybody you're going to be in a relationship, any job that you ever do, anything that you ever do worth doing, if there is love, if you care about what happens to it, you are engaged in a battle. You are going to be struggling. You are going to be taxed emotionally, mentally. You are going to expend energy. You are going to be spent. Sometimes you're going to have to fight for attention from the other person. Sometimes you're going to have to fight against yourself and your own tendencies and the thoughts that naturally occur to you that may not be right. But if you are going to love, you are going to be engaged in a struggle. Christians can get easily discouraged if they think that the Christian life is meant to be one of pure, smooth sailing. That if somehow I get in touch with the peace of God, that I'll never again need to strive. I'll never again be in a battle. I'll never again need to contend. And that is false. A lot of people get married and they are alarmed when after, especially if they just had a short engagement, they were under the illusion that they agreed about a great many things. But once they got married, three to five to seven minutes later, <laughs> they soon start to discover maybe we don't want to hold hands every second that we're awake or asleep. And what have I done? Who is this man? You realize there are things that discourage you. There are things that also create for disunity. If you're in a marriage, you're in a fight. If you're in a relationship with God, you're in for a fight. If you're in a church, you're in a battle. And so I'm reassured when I hear the Apostle Paul, who two weeks ago, when I wasn't here last week, thank you, Grant, for filling in. I saw you somewhere. There you are. You moved. I'm hallucinating. But last week we ended, or two weeks ago we ended, to this end I labor, says Paul. I want everybody, I want everybody to grow up into the knowledge of the, the one true man from heaven. I want them to know him. I want them to, to know the surpassing greatness of him and to mature in him. And I work with all my might. I struggle, I contend, I fight, I agonize. Struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. And then he says this to these Colossians, to whom he's writing a letter, but he has never met them. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you. 
and for all those at Laodicea, and for those who have not met me personally. I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you. He's just said, to this end I labor, struggling with all his energy. Or in the NIV, 2011, I'm doing 84 because, you know, God's inspired word. 2011 says contend. The whole idea is a competition. It's the strain. It's the striving that an athlete would do. It's a great and strenuous effort. And he wants this church to know, contrary to what they may have heard from fine-sounding arguments, that he is working his tail off for them. In prayer, like Epaphras, who's always wrestling with God for them, that they may be mature and fully assured, standing firm in all the will of God. He's wrestling with them in prayer. He's always calling down God's blessings, pulling down Christ's presence. In his preaching and what he's willing to put up with, in his correction, in his bearing with people, he's agonizing, he's struggling, he's defending. And here's why. Here's his purpose. My purpose is that they, you guys, the people I have not met and the church at Laodicea, that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. Some wise leadership folks would explicitly say, and many of you would implicitly realize, that if you want to get somebody to do something, if you want to influence anyone, whether that's a small child, whether that's a student that you're coaching or teaching, whether it's a congregation or employees in a business, it's often way more helpful to tell them what you want for them than what you want from them. You know, if people just think you just want something from them, they, they get a little nervous about that. But Paul is indicating, here's the depth of my devotion, and here is what I am warring for. Here's what I'm contending for. Here's what I'm in training about. Here's, instead of going to the gym, where I have never met a mirror I didn't like, <laughs> instead of going to the gym, what I am in strenuous, regimented care about is I am warring against disunity, and I am warring against discouragement. I got those backwards. I am warring against discouragement, and I am warring against disunity. That is an apostolic priority. And so he says, my purpose is that they would be encouraged in heart, which means he's warring against the discouragement that so naturally and easily becomes part of every person's life. It seems to me a worthwhile endeavor to start to think, okay, to war against discouragement. Is that what you think Christianity is about? That Christianity, when you understand it rightly, when you get rightly into contact with Christ, when you get rightly into contact with his church, that what you are engaged in is an experiment that is interested in the destruction of despair and the demolition of discouragement. It is interested in people who are deflated and rolling around on flat tires, getting the presence of God, the love and affection of the Savior, putting wind in their sails, putting air in their tires so that they can move together. 
so that comfort gets passed around. My professor, Bruce Waltke, our professor, some of you had him as well, used to say that one of the greatest tools that Satan has in his toolbox is the tool of discouragement. Where he gets in the human heart and he just scrapes the hope out. He pumps you full of this poison of discouragement that makes you look around and say, I am the exception. Everybody else seems to be getting along just fine. What's wrong with me? Is everything I've done worth nothing? Why does everybody else have reports of answers to prayer and I keep calling out and calling out and my spiritual autobiography could be Psalm 13. Why must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day and every day have sorrow in my heart and you get dejected and you get mired in quicksand and it gets hard to move. And Paul says, I want encouragement of heart. He thinks when he talks to the Philippians, if any of you have had any encouragement from being united to Christ, he thinks that something would happen when we get to be part of the church together and we get to be part of Christ. The encouragement would be something that would start to be free-flowing, which means we'll need, we'll need it because we have discouragement, because we get ground down, because we get beat up. Because we get to where we can't see everything there is around us. You know, if you, if you take a picture on your uh, little robot that you carry around that tells you everything to do, or if you use an actual camera, there's a lens, right? There's a frame in there. And it captures certain things, but it leaves out so much. And one of the things when you get discouraged is that all the loudest, worst, most terrible, most gloomy, most cloudy things, they fill up the viewfinder of your inner vision. You think never again will anything be good. None of this is worthwhile. What's the point? And there are people around you, though, who know, oh, 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 oh. you just need to move the camera. You just need to bring some other things into view. There's more to be seen, but you can't see it, but I can see it for you. I can be like Moses holding up those hands during the battle when your hands get too tired to be held up yourself. Larry Crabb has said, my desire, and I imagine that many of you would have the same desire, my desire is to be encouraged. I've, I've been, so I was encouraged one time, and a person said, just, I've been encouraged way more than one time, at least seven times. <laughs> but I've had people say to me before, I know you hate this. And then they say something nice to me about something I did. It was that great toil to myself, and I was wondering inside whether I should quit and never do it again, and whether I was the worst person who'd ever lived. And they told me something good, and they told me, as they told me something good about something I had done, they were sure that I hated it. I'm like, why? Have you met a human who doesn't like encouragement? Put them on their medication. Because 
I don't know, I haven't met that person yet. Even if they don't know how to receive it, even if they act weird about it, even if they go, inside they're going, they want it, they need it, and you've got it. But here's what happens. Things get inverted. You hear, yeah, the church should be a place of encouragement of heart. We should encourage each other in heart like the apostle wanted to do. We should be a one another in church. Well, they didn't encourage me. Here I am sitting up, like, nobody's encouraging me. So that's so Larry Kratz said, my desire is to be encouraged, because that's what we want. We want somebody to notice us. We want somebody to appreciate us. We want somebody to tell us it's real. We want somebody to tell us it's not all lost. We want somebody to say, oh, yeah, you, you too? Yeah, man, I know exactly what that's like. But it gets inverted sometimes, and we use this as a weapon. We get stuck in our own discouragement. And we, not getting what we want, we start accusing everybody else around us. They didn't encourage me. They don't think about me. That church doesn't love. That boss doesn't care about me. He doesn't encourage me. My spouse doesn't encourage my kids, my parents. What You're thinking about who's not encouraging you. I don't know what to do about that. I'm telling a bunch of people to encourage each other. So, I mean, if you do it, do it. I can't do anything more than that. But he says, my desire is to be encouraged. My goal, though, will be to encourage others. My goal will be to give away the thing that I wish to get. Now, don't do this as some kind of tactic, like how to encourage friends and win people. It's not, that's not the title of the book. It's a joke for the purposes of this illustration. It can't just be a tactic where you're trying to get something back. But it is a tactic for self-management and for destroying discouragement in yourself and others. Is when you feel discouraged, it might be a time to say, who might else be feeling like this? If you want to use bad English to yourself. <laughs> who also may be plumbing plummeting like I am and might need to hear a word from me because my guess is the places where you have felt the most estrangement the most loneliness the most alienation and the most struggle these are going to be the very places where you are most skillful and most tenderized and most ready for the spirit of God to use you to bring balm and courage and to spread around comfort to people who are thirsty for it so let's be committed with the Apostle Paul to the destruction, to warring against discouragement. And then he says, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. He has a purpose that he struggles for, that he wars against this unity. He's warring against this unity. Jesus warred against this unity. His whole ministry could be described as the ministry of reconciliation, bringing together disparate parties, bringing together parties at odds at great cost to himself. It's his dying wish that the unity we have together would be a depiction of the reality of God. And you've heard me say before, unity can come about in a couple of different ways. The happiest way, the best way, and the rarest way is for us to just happen momentarily 
to all think the same exact thing in the same exact way with the same exact emphasis, with the same exact tone at the same exact time. Where we just all happen to think instantly someone says blue and we're like, blue, I love blue. I love you for loving blue. I love her for loving blue. We love each other for loving blue. We all love blue until three seconds later we're like, blue stinks. I like green. Blue's stupid. What are you, a liberal? Why is he even saying blue? I just thought that analogy. But the, it's a stupid one, I realize. But you see, we could just naturally come to the same conclusions, and that's really nice. It's really nice you just naturally agree about everything. Walker Percy has noted, and this is one of the issues in, well, marriages, but also just in relationships in general. He says, when he meets this girl, and the last gentleman, he sees this girl from a distance and he thinks, this is, this is, I found the one. I know that she's the kind of girl that I could, I could sit on a bench with and eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and neither of us say a word and that would be okay. Because he was the kind of man who was handsome but did not say many words and so girls did not know what to do with him. But as they get along, he realizes this. She's acting weird. And they're out of accord. And he says, why is it that lovers can never sync up? Why is it that they're always alternation? Why is it one is always up when the other's down and was always more affectionate when the other's pulling away? Why can you not sync up at the same time? Why can't there be chronic synchronicity between their love and their togetherness with your friends, on your team, in your church? I don't know. We're fickle people. We're reactive people. I don't know the reason, but that's what happens. So that's why that first kind of unity don't happen too often. But the other kind of unity is a warring kind of thing. It's a struggle. It says, I'm going to fight to be together with you. I'm going to fight to defer to you. Sometimes I'm going to fight in prayer and say, Lord, I know you love this person and you somehow or another thought they were a good idea, even though clearly they are not. But I need you to put your heart for them in me. I need you to give me the, your vision of them. I need forgiveness for them. I need to come to see this from their standpoint. I need to be able to defer to them, to yield to them, to give to them. I need that. Or I need the courage to contend with them and to confront them sometimes. And I don't want to do that because they might not like it. But I feel like there's, they got something on, on their face and everybody knows it, but they don't. You know, if you've got food on your face at the restaurant or food in your teeth, the only people at the restaurant who don't know it is you. So sometimes you need your friends to tell you you've got something dangling off your chin while you're at the burger joint. To, dis to, to war against disunity is a requirement of prayerful wrestling and wrestling to fight for the other. It's easy at the first sight of conflict, at the first sight of getting hurt with each other. Like, if we're together, we're going to hurt each other. Some of that hurt will be plain malicious, but most of it will just be mindlessness. It'll just be inattentiveness. It'll just be that we can't take into account everything at once, and most everybody in here is thinking about themselves and their stuff and not you and your stuff. 
And the problem is you're thinking about you and your stuff and not them and their stuff. You see, there's a conflict brewing already. But we're a people who, because of Christ destroying hostility and propping himself against our ruin, are going to be warring against discouragement and warring against disunity and setting ourselves at it. And Paul thinks here's what will happen. If we're encouraged in heart and united in love, if we war against discouragement and we war against disunity, that we will have the full riches of complete understanding in order that we may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The apostle thinks and has experienced what Jesus taught, what the other apostles teach, that there is a kind of knowing of God who has revealed himself in Jesus as this treasure house of endless facets of fascination, of generosity, of compassion, of resilience giving, of joy creating, of trouble remedying, of judo on disappointment, of encouragement giving, of unity making. And this Christ can't be fully known, appreciated, reveled in by yourself. Now you can adore him by yourself and you should seek him by yourself and you should have time with him by yourself. But you need each other to come to know him in the right way, to get a fuller sense of who he is. You've heard me say before, I think I'm riffing on Tim Keller who said, if you really want to, like if you pray with other people, you'll come to know really fascinating things about God because of the way that people approach him together and the things that they have learned and the struggles where they have been trained and the scriptures that they have ingested. And as they pray together, you'll see different facets of who God is that will activate your imagination and your trust and your confidence in a new way. And that happens in our talking with each other, that as you're growing in the Lord, as you're learning things, as you notice something in the scriptures that just captivates you, and you point it out to me, I get to catch the draft, get a whiff of what you're cooking. I can say, yeah, that is tasty. I never thought of that before. Or I forgot about that. I need to know that. Bonhoeffer wisely said, he was quoted earlier in the prayer, that we are people in whom God has put his word. He puts his word in the mouth of a brother or sister that it might be communicated to people. And he says, I need my brother. He just said brother. but I need my brother or my sister to communicate the word of God to me because the Christ in their heart is more certain than the Christ in my heart. The Christ in my heart is weak and gets discouraged. The Christ in their heart is secure and certain. I cannot know Christ by myself only. I need you to help me know him. And you need me to help you know him. And Paul thought if we war against the discouragement, 
and are committed to that, and we war against this union, are committed in love to fight to be together, then the fruit of this is that Jesus will become more sweet, more available. He'll seem more wonderful. He'll seem better than you've yet expected. Treasure house of wisdom and knowledge. There are these shows where people buy locked up and abandoned or storage units that nobody paid for. You know those shows? Don't be worried. I don't watch these shows, but I have flipped through and I've seen them. I don't even know if they're on anymore. It's a fascinating concept. It's like this thing where you're like, huh, I wonder what's in there. There's a sword. You don't always know what's going to be there, but there might be something enough. I had a friend who bought salvage stuff from, that was returned from Amazon, and he could see like one thing in the big crate, and the crate's like $3,500, and then the rest of it's just kind of like a grab bag. You don't know what you're going to get. You hope it doesn't stink. There's enough of a thing that says, hey, that might be, that might be something. Might be a lot of returned computer electronic stuff in there. I don't know. And you buy the thing, and you start to, you start to dig into it, and you find, oh, my goodness. I didn't realize there'd be a bread-making machine. Holy cow! I didn't know there was going to be a tiller and an electric mower. Wow! You didn't know. But as you keep digging in and digging in, there's more treasure and more treasure and more treasure. And all the thing that you need most, says Paul, is just if you know more of him, the one you've received and you know a little bit about, if you stay rooted in him, you stay connected to him, you all stay connected to him and we keep fighting against disunity and discouragement together, we're going to see things about him and know him more preciously, more fervently, more and more and more, and there's an endless amount of treasure to explore. But it's going to involve a fight. When Pam and Jim, and depending on what age you are, you know what I just meant. There are characters on The Office the great love affair that sustained the show. But they're married, and I like it that they do this. They're married, and they have a riff, a breach of trust. He's looking at a job in another city. They don't, she doesn't want to move. He does want to move. They have a fight on Valentine's Day, first couple ever to have a fight on Valentine's Day. <laughs> no pressure. No, no, no pressure put on anybody on Valentine's Day. And they're fighting. They're in a rough patch. Things are dark. Marriage looks bleak. You're like, this is the office. We don't watch this for this. We need lighter fare than this, fellas. But Jim decides to go on to Philadelphia to his job that night on Valentine's Day. He's like, if I stay here, we're just going to fight. And Pam says, I don't think you should go. I think you should stay here and let's fight. And if you watch the show and you care about the show, you're invested in the show, your heart goes, oh, <laughs> that's love. Like they know something about relationships. They know something about connection. They know something about unity. They know something about what it takes. If you've got anything precious, you're going to fight for it. And you're going to keep fighting for it. You're going to struggle and you're going to contend. And Paul says that knowing Christ and being unified with his body and letting yourselves be known and knowing each other and risking the embarrassment of encouraging each other because it's embarrassing for a lot of you and risking letting others know you need encouragement, it's all worth the fight because the goal 
is that you would know him of surpassing greatness who supplies you with everything you need, who causes springs of living water to flow from within you, who refreshes his weary inheritance and surrounds you with his favor as with a shield, who hurls your sins into the depths and cleans you, who receives you and gives you eternal life and says, I will fight for you. And I will say to your soul, I am your salvation. Oh, Rock Creek Fellowship, let's fight against discouragement and against disunity so we may know him who will not stop fighting for us. Let's pray. Lord, it's hard for us to know you. The stuff around us seems so real, so big, so important, and you seem far off. Come to us now. Lead us.